When I moved to Raleigh to start NRCC, one of the first people who joined NRCC was named Jim. Jim was a big guy. He was probably six foot five and he was heavy set. He had a booming voice. He was a big man with a big personality. He died. That was very sad because he was dear to me. And as I was preparing for his funeral, which a friend should never have to do, uh, his wife, who is very informed on this kind of thing by the profession that she has, she speculated that Jim struggled socially as much as he did because he was on the Asperger's spectrum, which seemed to fit because Jim really struggled with social relationships. He said things that were way out of bounds. He missed a lot of cues. And he hurt a lot of people. And often, when he did, he was bewildered by it. He didn't understand how that had happened. And as big as he was and as loud as he was, when these things happened, nobody missed it. And so people would come to me uh, after church, usually on a Sunday, and say, Doug, you've got to get control of Jim. Make him stop. And so they said those things to me on a Sunday, and Mondays being my day off, I would be mulling this over on my day off, and I didn't know at that time anything about Asperger's, but I'd pray, and I would reflect, and I would seek wisdom. And again and again and again, this inner nudge would just rise up inside of me, which was, don't get control of Jim, love Jim. Don't get control of Jim, befriend Jim. Don't get control of Jim, invite Jim in. And so I would. And he would keep hurting people's feelings. And I would go and kind of smooth ruffled feathers, and the cycle would repeat again and again for a long time. And when Jim would learn that he had hurt someone, that I had been over there uh, smoothing ruffled feathers, he would apologize to me. He would try to apologize to the person, but often his apologies to the person just made it worse. But mostly he would do what he'd been doing for years before he came to NRCC, and that is he would just retreat retreat into his cave and try to avoid people. And then I would get another inner nudge, go get Jim, coax him out of his cave. And going through that as many times as I did, I got to know Jim pretty well. And he didn't spare me. Uh, some of the things that he said to me were tough. They were hurtful. They were harsh things. But as I got to know his heart... I would encourage him to engage people instead of going into his cave. And even though he created these episodes, and when I was uh, smoothing those ruffled feathers, it was a lot of hard work, I would usually go to people and say, let me just acknowledge up front what Jim has done, his missteps, but I also want to tell you about his heart. And that usually happened after the fact, but eventually uh, I started doing it in real time. I'd hear Jim in the process of saying some knuckleheaded thing. And I would say, whoa, 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 hey, uh, hold on here a minute. Let me tell you what Jim means by those words. And I would translate for him. And what I would say would seemingly have nothing to do with what he just said. But I would say, because I'd gotten to know Jim's heart, because I got to love him, I would say something along the lines of, here's what Jim means. What he means is, I love this community. And here's what Jim means. I love you. And I think this thing that I just said would be helpful. That's what I'm trying to do is help. And because I laughed when I did it, and because everybody knew that Jim did what Jim did, and because Jim 
had come to know what I was doing and would play along, he would say, yeah, yeah, didn't I say that? Isn't that what I just said? And over time, our community began to see beyond the kind of knuckle-headed things that Jim would say. And we began to see him as a man who did love our community and did love us and loved the people. He didn't express it very well, and we knew that. But we began to see that Jim was not defined by his social ineptitude. And looking past that, we were able to see the rich gift that Jim was. And he was. He was insightful, and he was wise, and he was compassionate, and he was generous. He was all those things. It was around that time that I coined a phrase that I use a lot. Yeah, he's a jerk, but he's my jerk. Which doesn't mean that we don't deal with jerk behavior, but it does mean that Jim and all of us in all of our jerkitude, we are not defined by our jerkness. We used to say it this way, we are not our sin. And if we take grace seriously, we get to see the deeper truth that resides in one another. Because there is a reality that is deeper than our failures. There is a reality that we carry that is deeper than our shortcomings. There is a reality that is deeper than the broken parts of our souls. In many ways, grace has been in the primordial soup from which NRCC has emerged. Grace is encoded in the DNA of our community. The second story, as you've heard or read on our website, from 1995 until 2007, our church, our community was consumed by two really big questions. Can we still be Christian? Can we still do church? Because those words, Christian and church, had been a mixed bag for many of us, on the one hand, we had had profound spiritual experiences that were deeply transforming. On the other hand, it had been a deeply hurtful experience to be part of church. So we did not abandon the heritage, as many do. Uh, we had experienced something profound in the heritage, uh, but we were disillusioned. And we couldn't, we couldn't bring ourselves, many of us, to believe what the church often told us that we had to believe so that was a really demanding time for us, trying to figure out how do you, how, what does it mean to be Christian in this new worldview? And consumed by those two questions as we were, the divisive issue of gay people in the church, that wasn't even on our radar. Now since then, we've done a lot of work on the issue. Uh, we have a lot of the why behind LGBT people belonging fully in our community. We have a lot of references to Bible and to history and to tradition and to science, but back then we hadn't done any of that work. And back then, two lesbian ladies emailed me from Oregon. We're moving to Raleigh, they said, and we have a daughter from a previous marriage, and she doesn't want to leave Oregon, and primarily she doesn't want to leave Oregon because she loves her youth group. And her youth group is in the same denomination as your church. So we've been talking to her about you. We've read your website. And here's the thing. We would like to come to your church. But here's the other thing. We're lesbian. And we know better than to show up at church. What do you think? Could we? Our daughter is heartbroken about leaving. Could we come? And more pointedly, could we come and not be shunned? So I wrote them back and I said, well, clearly you know that this is a big divisive issue in the church these days, 
But also, it's a discussion that we've never had as a community. So give me a week. I will invite the community to have this discussion, and then I will write you back. So I forwarded their email after stripping out all the personal information, and I said, these folks would like to come to our church. What shall we say to them? Uh, would you come out next Wednesday evening, and we can talk about it together? But before that, I said in the email, here's what we cannot do. We cannot say the easy answer, sure, come on in. But then after they get relationally connected, when they're ready to teach Sunday school or when they're ready to have some other role in the community, we can't spring it on them then. Oh, no, sorry, we can't let you do that. Uh, your kind of people can't really lead in the church. And I said, that is not an option for us because that is bait and switch and that is cruel. That means when you come out this Wednesday, you're going to be helping us decide together, can gay people fully belong at NRCC? And the next Wednesday, a lot of folks came out and we talked. And because it is a big divisive issue, a social issue, a church issue, a lot of people knew the cases that had been made out there in the argument, the cases that say this and the cases that say that. And so we, in the discussion that we had, kind of what are you thinking style, uh, here's what the Bible says about homosexuality. Here's what the Bible says about grace and acceptance. And I would say, yep, that is what the Bible says. How shall I respond to the email? And the argument would go on for a while, and they would say, well, here's what the Bible says about homosexuality. <laughs> and here's what the Bible says about grace and acceptance. And I would say, yes, that is what the Bible says. But again, what shall I tell them? Back and forth several times, yep, what shall I tell them? And eventually it was, God, Doug, we don't know. Why are you asking us? This is not supposed to be how church works. <laughs> and over the dis discussion time, it became clear, oh, this is why this is such a divisive issue in the church. This is why everybody just picks a side and says, this is our side. The other thing that became clear is, Doug's not going to tell us what to do. And that went quiet for a bit. And then a kind, older woman spoke up. I'm sad that you don't know her. Her name is Tricia Camp. Her health doesn't allow her to be with us anymore, and I miss her deeply. She spoke quietly, so everyone had to strain to hear what she had to say, and she said this. Doug, this is why churches struggle over this issue. Because once we decide that the Bible is how we'll make our decisions, and then we read the Bible saying X... And then we read the Bible saying not X. Getting to the right answer is just not really something that's available to us. We really want to get to the right answer, but that doesn't seem to be an option because X and not X. So, she said, we could let this issue tear us apart like every other church, or we could just admit that the answer is not as clear as everybody who's picked a side already says it is. And we could just be honest and say that if we're going to err anyway, why don't we err on the side of love and grace and acceptance? Because if we do this thing that the Bible says, we're going to err by not doing that one. And if we do this thing that the Bible says, we're going to err by not doing that one. And I think we should admit to ourselves that we're going to make a mistake, and this is the mistake I think matters most to Jesus. And after she spoke, the room got quiet, and the people looked at each other and said, yep, 
That's what you should tell them, Doug. <laughs> they can come and they can belong. Grace is encoded into the DNA of our community. A third story is about a family who came in those early years, and as we do, they began rethinking religion, and as we do, they began practicing the ancient practices, and as we do, they got connected in honest, authentic spiritual relationships. They were talking about their own personal struggles and marital struggles and kid-raising struggles, and they became very dear to many in the community, and many in the community became very dear to them. And then a big thing happened in their life. The husband was arrested for public exhibitionism, walking around downtown without a stitch on. So he was arrested, and his mugshot was plastered all over television. And his wife, who was deeply hurt, uh, emailed his mugshot to everybody in the community. So it was kind of a messy day at our church. So I left him a voicemail, and after he was out on bail, he emailed me and said, Doug, I want to thank you for folding us into the community. I want to thank you for the help that the community has been in our lives. But yeah, this thing has happened, and it is pretty humiliating. So I'll be leaving the church, but I didn't want to leave without thanking you and telling you how wonderful the experience has been in this community. So I asked him if he'd get coffee before he left, and we talked about the mess. And after I asked him, so you need to leave the church, okay. But before you do, would you be willing to do me a favor? Um, I don't think it's going to cost you much more trouble and humiliation than you are already suffering, but would you do this? Would you send me another email? And in that email, uh, tell me what happened. And I said, be frank. Say what you said to me about leaving the church. And then what I will do is I will forward that email on to the community, and I'll ask the community, what should we do? Who knows what will happen? It could be good for you. I suspect it would be good for our community to process this, but we'll see. I don't know how it will go. And so we had another Wednesday evening, and I told the story that he had given me permission to tell about why he did it, about his history. I laid it all out there, shared some of his own speculation. Maybe it was because of this experience in the past or that experience. He told me about court-appointed therapy, and I told the community about his wife leaving him and taking the kids and how if this case goes this way, this will happen. If it goes that way, that will happen. And then I posed the question, how shall I respond to this email? What shall I say? And then we begin to talk. Well, Doug, exhibitionism, that's kind of dangerous. We've got the kids. We've got the bathrooms. It's dangerous. And that went back and forth for a while. And then the conversation shifted, as you would expect, to grace and redemption and forgiveness that are big themes in our tradition. And then after that discussion had gone on for a while, I said, okay, what shall I tell him? And after a moment of quiet, a guy who had been pretty vocal about the danger, uh, he stood up to speak. And that's kind of notable that he stood up because that's not what we do when we do what are you thinking. We usually don't stand up. But he said this when he stood, the difference between me and this man, the difference between all of us and this man is that his sin is out there in public and his sin is sexual. But if we're honest, if we tell him that he can't belong here, we'd have to say the same thing to me and we would have to say the same thing to all of us. We can't belong here either. And then he sat down. 
and it was quiet, and then he stood up again. But I do think, he said, we have to figure out how to mitigate the danger for our kids and the bathrooms. And so for 10 minutes, we hammered out safety guidelines. What would it be like to have this man in our community and be safe? And then Tricia Camp, the same lady in that last story, she spoke up and said this. We spent a lot of time talking about how to protect the community from this man. We haven't done much talking about how the community can protect this man. This is probably the hardest thing that he'll ever face, she said. How can we support him? And how can we stand with him? And so for the next 10 minutes, we spent that time hammering out that. And we did, both. We worked together to make sure that the community was safe, and we made sure that this man was safe. Grace is encoded in the DNA of our community. And today, we're going to decide again who we are. Are we still a community of grace? Is grace still encoded in our DNA? Will we still be organized around that ancient principle. Mark came to me to talk about how much IAF, this community of communities, ignites his passion, how much he wants to serve in that area of our community, how much he feels like everything in his life has prepared him for that as an area of ministry. But he's afraid. He's afraid that his past will render his role in our community inaccessible to him. So I asked him, how brave are you? (laughs) Why don't we ask the community? Would you tell your story and then let us discuss it? And he said yes. And then just to kind of work out how he would tell his story, he talked to several in the community, people who have come to love him, people who said, don't do it, Mark. What if it goes badly? Feeling very protective of him, they said, it's so public and you're so vulnerable. Are you sure, Mark? And so they said the same to me. And so I called Mark and I said, are you sure, Mark? (laughs) And he said, it's scary. It really is. But I really want to do this role in IAF and I don't want this fear hanging over my head. So he's going to tell his story. And I, he, as we talked beforehand, he said he'd rather not be here while we talk together. But he's going to leave, and then we're going to uh, talk, and then we're going to say goodbye to George, and then I'm going to go to a board meeting, and then this afternoon I'm going to call him. And I'm not going to tell him who said what, but I am going to give him an upshot of what we discussed about his role in our community. So Mark, if you would come up. For those of you who don't already know, my name is Mark Patain. Lately, I've been getting involved in our community of communities. I'm on the NRCC IAF Steering Committee. I'm also attending uh, trainings, actions, and beginning to have a public role. The vision of helping families in our city, breaking down barriers, and building relationships energizes me. I want to tell you my story because it may affect whether I can keep doing this role. 
when I was 19, there was a 20-year-old girl that I partied with and lost my virginity to. A few months later, we were again at a party and again in bed together, except this time she passed out and I kept going. Two days later, I was arrested and charged with rape. My parents bailed me out of jail and retained the best lawyer in town. Other than conversations with him where he would torque the truth, I discussed the case details with no one but myself and God as I understood it at the time. I needed to decide whether I would plead guilty or innocent. My month of contemplative solitude was accompanied by a tree stump in the middle of a wooded meadow, a King James Version Schofield study Bible, a purpose-driven journal, and quiet. My ego cried for its version of justice, ready to blame her for the situation. Just go along with the lawyer, my parents, and everybody else who thought I had a better background than she did. Once the violent noise in my head tired itself out, another vision surfaced from deep within. Her being further humiliated as my lawyer painted her with thick condemnation. I already hurt her. I was the one who had done wrong. So against social and legal advice, I pled guilty before the trial had a chance to start. The circumstances and my privilege got the felony reduced to a misdemeanor. Ultimately, I served the better part of a year in county jail and was sentenced to life on the New York State Sex Offender Registry. The past 15 years, being on the registry has deeply damaged my hopes, relationships, and livelihood, and those of my family. I am familiar with the pain of being marginalized, and I have come to relate deeply with the painful stories of others. The difference is what agitates me most. Women, blacks, browns, LGBTQs, and whoever else experience othering, they experience it for no fault of their own. I recognize that hearing my story may be a painful trigger for victims of sexual abuse. I encourage you to tell your story to someone like Jennifer Murray, who has experience and expertise in such reconciliation. I've had the honor and privilege of getting to know Jennifer. Our shared time in contemplation and conversation helped her with her own healing and forgiveness process from the harmful and devastating effects she suffered having sexual crimes committed against her. She says, the gains she has received by entering into an authentic relationship with me far exceeds the demands and cost of taking the leap of faith to develop our friendship. This kind of experience is why I'm so passionate about authentic relationships. They change lives. Along comes IAF, who help organize such relationships to change lives at a government and corporate level. 
And this is why I choose to share my story with you today. I desire to continue building holy human relationships with all of you and not let fears and shame cheat us of the divine communion we can have together. Hopefully, I can represent a strong, beautiful community as I connect with members of other communities. Thank you for letting me share my story, and a special thank you to Jennifer Murray for letting me share some of yours. So here's what Mark told me when he asked about the role. He said, these last 15 years have been years of dashed hope. Being on the registry has been crushing of career and housing and friendships. He said, it was my doing. It's my crime. But now every time a passion comes up inside, like now, I'm afraid that the other shoe is going to drop any minute. I think IIF, he said, could be a lifetime passion for me. But he also said, living out here on the fringe, it has kind of affected my growth. Sometimes I get inappropriately angry. Sometimes I push too hard. Sometimes I don't push hard enough. And I'm afraid that when my flaws show up, as they will, all people will see is the registry. So the question before us today is, what shall I tell Mark this afternoon? What shall I say? Why shall I say it? And how shall I say it? To put it another way, if restorative justice is about repairing harm that has been done, how does that work with the one who has done the harm? You hear about our projects, we're looking to restore uh, where harm has been done, but how does that work on the other side of the equation? How does restoring how does grace work with those who have done the harm? How are people integrated back into community? How does it happen? How are people restored? So, what are you thinking? What is God stirring up in your heart?